Today I'm speaking with Chris Voss. Chris is an expert in negotiation. He's the founder and principal of the Black Swan Group, which consults with Fortune 500 companies about negotiation. He also teaches at the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business and at Georgetown University's School of Business. He's lectured at many leading institutions, Harvard, MIT, and Northwestern. And perhaps most relevant to our conversation today, he was a hostage negotiator for the FBI for many years. And we spend most of our time talking about his experience in the field there, negotiating with terrorists and ordinary hostage takers and bank robbers. And then he has distilled some of the lessons he's learned from those extreme conversations for more ordinary ones. And he's written a book on negotiation titled Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. And now, without further delay, I bring you Chris Voss. I am here with Chris Voss. Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Sam, my pleasure. Sorry uh, I made it so hard getting all my tech set up. Not at all. It's amazing we can do this remotely. So let's just jump into your background because you have more than the usually fascinating background for a podcast guest. Thank you. How is it that you became a hostage negotiator? <laughs> okay. All right. So the, the pivot, uh, the pivot point in the FBI, cause you, um, I was an FBI hostage negotiator and you have to be an FBI agent first to be an FBI hostage negotiator. Uh, I was actually a member of the SWAT team. I was on uh, SWAT FBI Pittsburgh and uh, I had a recurring knee injury. And I realized that, uh, there was only so many times they could put Humpty Dumpty back together again. I'd had my knee reconstructed for the second time. And so then before I blew it out entirely, I thought, you know, well, I talk to people every day. How, how hard could it be to talk to terrorists? I could do, I could do that. Is, is this the usual path to becoming a hostage negotiator? Do, do they just draw from the ranks of existing law enforcement or um, I guess for the FBI, you know, anyone who's in the rank and file or, or do most people seek it out through a, in a very deliberate way through a separate track? It's a little bit more that people um, uh, seek it out after becoming uh, whatever law enforcement agency they're in. I mean, every law enforcement agency has additional specialties that if you get into it, there might be something that attracts you. And there, and there are kind of four basic specialties and there are four basic real different types. You know, negotiation is one of those. And you can be a hostage negotiator with the FBI. You can be a hostage negotiator with New York City Police Department you got to be uh, a law enforcement guy with that agency first. And then if you find it, if it finds you, you know, whatever serendipity lines up and hopefully it's, it's your calling. And I originally thought SWAT was my calling and thank God I hurt my knee uh, because uh, negotiation was better for me than SWAT ever was. And SWAT was great. How long were you a SWAT operator? Probably two years, roughly. I mean, I got on the Pittsburgh SWAT team actually before I had actually gone through our SWAT school, but there was a lot of local training with the Pittsburgh team, and then plus I'd been a cop before, so I was used to running around waving guns responsibly as opposed to not paying attention to what you were doing. So I was a Pittsburgh SWAT for about, about a year and a half, two years. So you went from Pittsburgh SWAT to FBI SWAT or, or FBI negotiation? Yeah, it's all confusing, right? All right, so Pittsburgh FBI office has its own office, and they got their own SWAT team. They got their own negotiation team. Each field office, about 56 of them, have their own teams, if you will. And I had gotten transferred to New York in the interim and then uh, worked to get on the Pitts, uh, New York hostage team. And how many hostage negotiations were you involved in? Is this the kind of thing you, you keep count of? I would imagine it might be. Well, hey, yeah, you know, not just on a bedpost, right? Um, or on, on, the, uh, on the belt or the totem pole or wherever you want to put it. But uh, um, I was, while I was in New York, uh, I was involved in probably about, off the top of my head, three sieges um, of varying sizes. Fortunate, fortunate for me, one of them was a bank robbery with hostages, which is really a really extremely unusual event. Uh, happens in the movies all the time in real life. 
Bank robberies where hostages are taken and negotiations subsequently ensue are very rare. It happens about, uh, it does once every 20 years in New York City, about the same amount across the U.S. I mean, just rare. Usually the bank robbers get away first. Right, right. So, yeah, I'd, I'd been in one of those and, and a couple of um, some fugitives in a, in a high rise in Harlem, um, smaller situation in the, upstate New York. Um, so that was a fair amount, relatively speaking. Um, most negotiators don't get that many in an entire career. I got them in in just a couple of years. And then when I became a full-time hostage negotiator at the FBI Academy at Quantico, you know, we started working stuff right and left. And I probably worked, counting the kidnappings I worked internationally, my rough guess is uh, no less than 150 situations around the world. And can you generalize about the dynamics of a hostage negotiation or do they change radically and maybe even totally invert depending on the context? Because I can imagine there are, I'm kind of thinking in, in international terms here, where there are countries where they routinely take hostages as a kind of, you know, cottage industry where it's just like, it's not routine to kill the hostages and it's very routine to, to just negotiate until you get some economic completion. Whereas, you know, if ISIS is taking hostages now, we know all too well that it's, it's very common to have them killed. What can you say about the different kinds of situations people are in? Yeah, great question. I mean, um, so domestic U.S. contains situation inside a bank, inside somebody's house, inside an apartment in Harlem. You know, that resembles a family holiday dinner. Mm. <laughs> gone, lots gone terribly people, awry. Yeah. Lots of people upset, you know, past wrongs that other people have completely forgotten about being thrown in people's faces. You know, like all the you know, every year there's there's a movie out about uh, a holiday dinner at somebody's house and with siblings mad at each other and parents trying to hold it all together. <laughs> that's that's a little more common, uh, a contained situation, if you will. Uh, very much as you uh, observed, uh, international kidnapping mostly is a commodities business. Commodity cold-heartedly happens to be human beings. And there's perception and reality. Perception is people get killed all the time, even with ISIS. Reality. It's a financial transaction. You know, ISIS, their commodity was lots of different citizens, and they got what they could out of them, whether it be publicity or money. They get they get money for Western Europeans. They get publicity for Americans. But there's always a commodity there. The challenge is spotting what the commodity really is in any negotiation. Yeah, well, that that's an interesting point, because with respect to international hostages, even with a group like ISIS, you have the effect of the different countries' policies. So I mean, we, we have a policy, if I'm not mistaken, that we don't pay ransom under any conditions. And I, there, were, there were a few well-publicized cases where the U.S. even made it illegal for the families to pay ransoms, whereas these Western European countries, many of them routinely pay ransoms. And so it, it becomes this, you become a very unlucky hostage if you are the American among many Western Europeans. I don't know if that's changed at all. What What is the, the current U.S. policy with respect to negotiating and paying ransom for international hostages? Well, uh, the U.S. policy is all gray, and that's why it's been reported so many different ways in the media, and, there, and it was actually funneled back to the families improperly by the wrong U.S. government officials. I mean, there was, there was a bonehead at the, uh, and I'm happy to say it was a bonehead, at the National Security Council that was quoting it wrong the entire time. You know, what nobody knew was that nobody from the Department of Justice ever told the families it was illegal for them to pay ransom. And the Department of Justice, people responsible for prosecution. Uh, the National Security Council, Bozo, was not responsible for prosecution, was ultimately essentially relieved of his position because he handled the family so badly. Um, what does all that mean? What all that really means is the U.S. doesn't make concessions, um, and there's, there's some real fine nuancing to that, but there is room to allow ransoms to be paid, but the U.S. government officials aren't always smart enough to know that. Um, the issue is what's the long-term consequences as opposed to the short-term expediency, and of course, there's the way the Euro Europeans do it, and 
you know, they back up to the hostage takers strongholds with truckloads of money and dump it all out on them, which makes it far worse for the rest of the world. And, and that's what would turn it into chaos. I mean, all the, the Western European nations are famous for showing up with suitcases, if not truckloads of money for hostages. And that, that's where things really get really get out of control. Yeah. So what should the policy be, in your view? Because, it, yeah, the, it's easy to see how we would be creating this industry by rewarding it so reflexively. And yet, when you are in a specific situation where, you know, especially if it's your loved one who's hostage, you can imagine that there's just this moral and psychological imperative to just pay at any cost, where, and you really don't care about the, the external effects of creating higher risk for other people in the future. What do you think, if we could get everyone on the same page with respect to how to treat these situations, everyone being all the relevant countries, what should people do? Well, you know, the best analogy um, is the bank robbery analogy. We give bank tellers bait money. And that way you give the bank robber a little bit of money, uh, the money's marked, and the bank robber gets his money and he leaves. I didn't even know that. Is this widely reported I just, or I just haven't watched the right movies? All bank tellers have money that they can just hand over? All bank tellers have bait money. And every single one of them. And they're all trained. Bank robber comes in a bank, you reach for the bait money, you hand them that money. It's not worth losing the life of a bank teller over a couple of hundred, few thousand dollars. So you save the bank teller's life. The bank robber gets some of what he came in for. He's scared, he's rattled, he just wants to take some money, take the money and run. He gets the money and run. Now the bait money's marked. So the great thing about that is there's probably an exploding die pack inside the bait money. And as soon as the bank robber steps out, it goes pout poof and it puts all sorts of green dye all over the bank robber. But even if the die pack doesn't go off and he goes back to his hideout and he splits the money up among his co-conspirators who didn't go to the bank, uh, money's ridiculously easy to trace insanely easy to trace. How is that? I, I can't picture how it would be easy to yeah, trace. Yeah, you know, it, it's only in the serial numbers. I mean, it's, and those of us that aren't in the bids, business of tracing money, we figure it's complicated because we don't keep close track of our money. But ever since, you know, the U.S. Watergate days, the refrain was follow the money. Well, it's follow the money because the money's insanely easy to follow. You can, you can follow it back. You can find out, you know, who else had the money? It, it actually is a great way to round up the entire gang instead of just, you know, the guy that they thought was expendable enough to send into the bank to get the money for everybody else. So you can round up the whole gang if you follow the money. And that's really where it comes down to. There was a, there was a kidnapping in Ecuador in about 2000, the first time the U.S. government tried this. This kidnapping gang had been hitting oil pro- platforms every year around October and have been getting away because with, with money because there's insurance money for, for kidnapping. And the third time they hit it, uh, unfortunately, an American, American was executed. But then the U.S. government decided, like, all right, so we're going to get behind this payment and we're going to follow the money. And what ended up happening, because it only takes about five or six guys to conduct the kidnapping. Well, they made the payment. They followed the money. They rounded up 50 people. And they shut down the entire kidnapping gang, and they never executed another kidnapping. They never killed another person. This was the first time the entire organization had ever been taken down. It was incredibly successful. Now, they didn't get all the money back, but what they did was save countless lives on down the line by following the money and taking out the entire gang of 50 instead of maybe taking five you know, had they gone on a rescue, maybe they'd have gotten three, four, five kidnappers. The rest of them would have gotten away. A lot of hostages would have got killed. You know, the long-term solution is to be smarter than the bad guys. And that's the way you're smarter than the bad guys. Walk me back to the analogy from bank robbing to other hostage situations. So, so what should be the, the international policy with respect to terrorist organizations? Well, um, first of all, yeah, you go ahead and engage in the conversation. The U.S. policy actually is explicitly stated these days that we shouldn't be afraid to communicate with anybody. We should, the old John F. Kennedy line, you should never be afraid to negotiate, never negotiate out of fear. 
but never be afraid to negotiate. So communicate. The communication process becomes an intelligence gathering process. You, you generate a lot of information. You learn a lot about them. You learn their, you profile them. You learn their, their tendencies. They tell you who they are inadvertently by their word choice. You can narrow down where they're from, how old they are, where they grew up by their choices of words. And you talk to multiple people on the other side. You gather a massive amount of information. You actually give yourself a better chance to conduct a rescue if you engage in communication. Then, you know, if you get into some bargaining, you bargain them down. They want some money. They want to take the money and run. You find a way to make the delivery. You gather information over the delivery. You find out about how they pick up money, where they go, what they do with it. You follow the money and you follow them back to their hideout. You trace the money. You find out where they're buying weapons. You find out where they're buying bandages. You find out where they're buying beer, whatever they're buying. Who are they doing business with? What's the illegal markets they're spending their money in? Because they're buying weapons someplace. You want to know who they're buying them from. You trace all the money. You do a couple of month investigation. You not only bring the, ba- uh, the kidnappers to justice, but you bring justice to their colleagues that have been supporting them also. It's, a, it's, a, it's long-term. It requires patience, and it works. But how does one trace money in these kinds of transactions. I mean, for instance, you know, I, I just walked into a market and used a $20 bill. You know, had I gotten that from a bank robbery, I can only imagine that just disappears into the economy without a trace. Uh, that's what you imagine. And that's why... That's why I'm a bad bank robber? The, the guys that do white collar uh, round all these people up. I mean, the greatest investigations in the world that you know, Al Capone was taken down by a white collar investigation following the money. Watergate was unraveled by following the money. You know, our, our brothers and sisters in forensic accounting are work magic on following the money. The rest of us think it disappears into oblivion when we walk into a 7-Eleven and drop a $20 bill. And that is not the case. But how is it getting tracked? So when the 7-Eleven sends their cash to the bank, it gets scanned as coming from the 7-Eleven? All right. So you want me to reveal to the bad guys right now how we're tracking their money? <laughs> well, I'm not going to do that. I'll let you judge what's prudent here, but it is interesting. So we have different situations here. I mean, so you, you, you talked about the highly personal hostage situation. I mean, just a boyfriend taking his girlfriend hostage. This is clearly a situation born of real emotional distress. And I I could imagine that has a very different character than the routine hostage taking overseas done by people who do this all the time as a business. Do they require radically different approaches or can you can you generalize about the commonalities between those situations? No, it's a great question. Um and the answer is uh every hostage negotiation team in the world and every situation that they approach, whether it be contained, emotional, or transactional kidnapping, they all use the exact same eight skills. Now, the, the commonality is there's going to be an emotion, and there aren't that many emotions. Now, it's either going to be anger, it's going to be greed, it's going to be excitement, it's going to be a sense of loss, it's going to be a fear of loss. Daniel Kahneman, who won the uh, Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics, said that human beings around the planet, regardless of situation, are most driven by fear of loss. Not, not exclusively, of course, but most driven by fear of loss. So this encompasses human behavior. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a kidnapping, whether it's a bank robbery, whether it's a business transaction. So human beings have the same basic set of emotions and they're driven, and they're all driven from the caveman days by the same survival instincts and fear of loss. Fear of loss is the biggest single driver of human behavior globally, and I mean globally by um, uh, age, gender, ethnicity, or globally in terms of situations. So you start with those rules, and then you begin to look for commonalities. You start to find them really quick, regardless of whether or not it's a banker or it's a kidnapping. Well, we'll get into the general principles that you've extracted here in a minute, and, and these don't just apply to hostage negotiations, but to negotiations of any type. But let's just talk about your experience in the trenches here a little bit more. 
Are there any negotiations that that stand out for you as far as having taught you the most or having been the most intense or or impactful on you? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, kind of try to learn from all of them. But like, let's go to the let's go to the bank robbery first. Bank robbery with hostages, Chase Manhattan Bank. Uh, the ringleader in that group um, was a ridiculously controlling guy. Um, interestingly enough, uh, right on, you, you call into a bank, you expect the bank robbers to be upset, concerned. He actually said to the NYPD negotiator, who was the first negotiator on the phone with him, he literally says to him, I'm the calmest one here. <laughs> uh, he was a really manipulative guy. Uh, crazily enough, he exhibited the same uh, negotiation approach as, as a really smart CEO. He tried to diminish his influence, uh, how influential he looked on a phone when he was talking on a phone with us. He was saying, yeah, it's not up to me. There's a lot of other guys here, you know, and they're more dangerous than I am. They're the unreasonable ones. You know, uh, he used, he was in love with plural pronouns. What's a guy who's in love with plural pronouns going to do? He's trying to hide his influence, he or she, so that you don't put him down at the table. And this is what this guy did in the bank. By the time I got onto the phone with him, I used a hostage negotiation technique that we referred to as mirroring, which is just repeating what someone has said, kind of word for word. Because he said stuff that startled me, and it's a great verbal reflex when you're caught off guard, and it buys you a lot of time. And the other side ends up just blurting stuff out that they wouldn't blurt out otherwise. When I mirrored this guy, because I was asking him about the getaway van, and he said, you know, we don't have we don't we don't have one van. I said, You don't have one van? He said, We have more than one van. I said, You have more than one van? He said, Yeah, well you chase my driver away. Now what he did when he said you chase my driver away, he just roped in a third guy that we didn't even know was involved in a bank robbery. Which is, you know, he was so controlled, he involuntarily blurted out admissions of guilt, not just on him, but on other people. And we ended up rounding up the whole gang. Everybody surrendered. Um, it took about 12 hours from start to finish, which is kind of par for the course when you begin to understand a profile of situations, if you will. And um, I learned a lot from that. You know, I, he, he got, once he realized that he'd voluntarily given us stuff that he wished he hadn't said, he actually handed off the phone to another guy. Uh, the controlling negotiator will get flustered. They'll get frustrated, but they won't get angry in a way that damages the situation. He got so frustrated and flustered, he just handed off the phone to his colleague who had been manipulated into the situation. I got that guy to surrender to me in about 90 minutes. He met me outside the bank. And when he, when he came out, he admitted to everything that was going on, told us who was inside and what was going on. Then it was just a matter of time for us to continue to work our process and get everybody out of line. So is it common in these situations that you're able to exploit different levels of commitment or different goals on the part of the, the, the people involved, the hostage takers? Yeah, it, it's real common. And, and you, you start out just sort of feeling your way through the situation, you know, looking for gently for whatever thread you could get. And then, you know, with a gentle sort of patient approach, you can unravel the situation really easily. and. And, and it works. I mean, it just works consistently. And if, if, you, if you work the process, you'll actually negotiate through the entire situation with patience faster than you will by being in a hurry. There were a few cases in your book where you essentially give the blow-by-blow for some of these negotiations where it's a, a family who is in the loop with, I guess, the FBI in this case. And you're trying to negotiate the price down. This is not a not a bank robbery, but some international hostage kidnapping. Kidnapping, yeah. In a situation where the initial demand is so sky high that no one involved could possibly pay it, I, I sort of understand it. But at a certain point, it must begin to seem unethical to be driving a hard bargain in dialogue with someone who is threatening to kill or dismember your loved one. I mean, what, what is the point of, you know, when you, you know, get it down to whatever it is, $50,000 that the family can pay, to be driving it lower than that? I mean, some, some of these negotiations that you detailed 
continued past the point where I thought, okay, this this seems like it's just raising the risk to the the hostage. Yeah, um, great questions. Um, and so the issues of uh, ethics, morality, any negotiation, um, it's what it is to the other side. That's the definition of empathy. Uh, empathy is not sympathy. Figure out what it is to the other side and then ignore human nature at your peril. You know, we had, we had a rule, um, when are the kidnappers going to let the hostage go? When they feel they've gotten everything they can. Not when they did get everything they can but when they felt like they got everything they can. So it's an emotional approach. Now, we knew in kidnapping negotiations that if we didn't exhaust the kidnappers, the chance of a du double dip was highly likely. So that begins, you know, what's going to make the family happy and, or versus what's stupid. So when you say double dip, you mean you pay them and they don't release the hostage? Exactly. Uh, if, if we, they have to have felt like they got everything they wanted or because very, very rare is a simultaneous exchange. Right. Uh, implementation, whether or not the kidnappers are going to release the hostage is the issue because they're going to get the money before you, they let the hostage go. And when they get the money, do they say to themselves, well, I, you know, that was kind of easy. And they call the family back and they say, you know what? Thanks for the down payment. Now, if I walk a family into that, then I've been grossly negligent. And I know that's common if I don't hammer the kidnappers down to the last dime. How do I know it's coming? Because the business has a history of it. And if I ignore that history and go with the family's wishes, which happened in several cases, right. the family was like, we could pay. And I knew that the risk was too high of a double dip. And I'm not going to, I'm, you know, and th that's the primary reason. The secondary reason so I felt an intense obligation to not allow families to be victimized twice just because they can't afford to pay a million dollars and it will wipe out and destroy their, their financial future for the rest of their lives. Do I want them to be victimized a second time by destroying their future, by letting the bad guys take every last time? I'm not willing. I know that consequence is coming also, and I'm not willing to, I'm not willing to put them through that. So as a professional, there's an issue of what's the smart thing to do or what's the easy thing to do. Um, you got to do the smart thing, and it's not always an easy, easy thing. Can you generalize about how often hostage takers succeed in getting what they want? I mean, they, they get the money, they release the hostages, they do it over and over again, and they're never caught? Kidnapping around the world, the uh, vast majority of the hostages get out, vast majority of the hostages are bought out. Whether or not they're caught uh, has much more to do with the local law enforcement infrastructure. There's nothing I could do about that. What I can do is gather as much evidence as possible so that we indict them in an American court and American justice has a long, long memory. The, uh, the kidnappers involved in the Burnham case and the Jeffrey Schilling case from 2000 to 2002, we indicted all of them and we caught up to all of them. Now, we didn't do it in six months and it was a matter of years, but one way or another, because of the American system, we caught up with the bad guys and either, as uh, one of our previous presidents said, bring them to justice or bring justice to them. And that's kind of the process that I was always deeply committed to, was uh, we're not going to, if local law enforcement is lax, we aren't, we're not giving them a pass. We're going to indict them. Those indictments will last as long as U.S. government lasts, and, and we'll bring them to justice eventually. Remind me about the Schilling case? Schilling, uh, Schilling happened just before the Burnham case, uh, same group involved, that was that literally shilling was over for about three weeks when the Burnham case kicked off. Talk about it in the book. Uh, it's the one where um, Jeffrey Schilling ultimately walked away, and after it was over, the the bad guy, terrorist, murderer, sociopath on the other side, called our negotiator on the phone just to tell him how much he respected uh, how, right, how right. well he was treated. That was funny. I, I, I can't imagine that happened very often. <laughs> no. No. So given what you know about negotiating from outside the crisis, what would you do if you were taken hostage that it might not occur to the average person to do? Well, uh, since I know the chances are I'm going to come out, you know, it's up to me then to engage in psychological approach that maintains my sanity as much as possible, makes me treated better. You know, make sure the kidnappers know my name. 
don't don't resist what they want me to do. Don't be a pain in the neck. But if they grab me and they try to drag me to the other side of the room, I just look at them and I say, I'm Chris. You know, I will repeat my name to them as much as possible so that they figure out eventually I'm going to, I'm going to condition them to say, Chris, come over here and I'll go over. Right. Instead of them dragging me over because then I'm Chris. And as soon as I become Chris, the chances are that they're going to harm me, hurt. I become a person. Now, at some point in time, when they see me as a person, they're actually going to want to make friends with me. They're stuck with me too. There was a Mark Wahlberg movie a number of years back where he was running a, a facility where they were using chimpanzees for science experiments in space flight. And they had all the chimpanzees numbered and he came in and he gave them names. And the guy stopped him and he said, as soon as you give them names, it's going to be harder to walk them out to the experiments. You're going to get attached to them. You're going to treat them better. That's human nature. So I'm going to, I'm going to exploit what I know to be the case in human nature. And I'm going to sit back and I'm going to, I'm going to develop a relationship with my captors. And then I'm going to think about um, who I'm going to sell my story to when I come out. <laughs> so it, it is such a high probability of, of a successful resolution that you would view it as unnecessarily risky to attempt to escape. And what, what are the conditions under which you would decide you should be running the risk of violent conflict by attempting to escape yourself? Well, um, all right. So uh, when they first grab you, they expect you to fight back. Now, that's the only time you can get away with fighting back. It's still a stupid idea because since they expect you to fight, they're also prepared to beat you senseless. Now, it's a separate issue as to whether or not you run away. The, the issue is not whether or not you try to get away. The issue is whether or not you use violence to do it. They're not going to blame you for getting a, uh, trying to get away. They would, too. They're just going to blame you if, you if you use violence to do it. You walk away, run away, they catch you. They'll be mad at you, but they won't beat you unconscious for it. You know, we had one hostage walked away in Ecuador a couple times because, uh, you know, uh, they let him go to the bathroom by himself. And every time he went to the bathroom by himself, he'd stay away for a few minutes longer. He conditioned to them to expect him to be away for a while. And when he built the time period up, he walked away when he went to the bathroom. Now, when they caught up with him, their anger response was they took his claws away for a while. That was, that was the extent of their punishment. Other hostages who've tried to escape by the means of violence have gotten themselves killed. So a walk away, a run away, they don't blame you for that. They expect you to do that as long as you don't do it with violence. This is interesting because this advice is diametrically opposed to what I consider to be the conventional wisdom in self-defense situations that are, that are not classical hostage situations. But if you have, you know, if you're, you're getting into your car in the parking lot and someone comes up with a gun and says, you know, get in, the advice I've always gotten from law enforcement, from you know, martial artists, from people who just know these situations, is to resist violently and explosively as quickly as possible. And that, you know, above all, Never let yourself be taken to a secondary crime scene. You, you might not agree with that self-defense advice in the first place, but assuming you do, it sounds like the rules could change if you are in a situation where hostage takers just have a sufficient control that then your marshalling violence is virtually guaranteed to work against you. Yeah, well, you know, there's a, there's a couple nuances to that question. You got to be careful about generalizations, and, but that is a great question. All right. So first of all, uh, the common theme at all times is to get away. Now, your choice as to how you want to get away um, and what you're faced with. And there's a big difference between a domestic U.S. hostage kidnapping and an international kidnapping. Massive difference. Principally, in a domestic U.S. kidnapping, the bad guys know they're going to get caught. They assume they're going to get caught and you are the number one witness against them. So domestic U.S. kidnapping is a very dangerous affair. So let's, let's unspool that a little more slowly. What is fundamentally different in terms of what you'd assume the outcome would be domestically? Yeah, the domestic guys know that we've got this great, not only do we have a great law enforcement infrastructure, we've got a prison system that holds people for a long period of time. And most kidnappers still believe that they, you get the death penalty for kidnapping. Now, you only get the death penalty for kidnapping if your victim dies and the state has a death penalty. But the bad guys are not studying up on U.S. 
history and the changes in the laws. So they figure that at a bare minimum, they're going to jail for a very long time, if not receiving the death penalty. That is not the case in other countries where kidnapping exists. You don't go to jail in Mexico for kidnapping. If you do, you stay there just long enough to get a meal. Um, the domestic uh, Brazil, same way. You don't, you know, you don't, you don't do any jail time in Brazil. And if you got jail time, there's going to be a prison break. You're going to get out anyway. So they know that. They understand how long they're going to stay in jail. So domestic U.S. kidnapping, very dangerous affair. They and you are the biggest threat to their freedom as a witness, and they do not want that witness to live. In in the third world, the developing world, they could care less. They're more interested in getting paid. They're not worried about getting caught. Otherwise, there wouldn't be so much kidnapping in Colombia, Ecuador, Central America, South America, Mexico, Iraq. So that you got to know where you are. But that might cut both ways. Might? In the sense that in, let's put it in Colombia for the moment, if the risk of being caught and prosecuted is so low, then I would think the the life of the hostages would be commensurately cheap there too, because you're presumably you're not getting easily caught and prosecuted for murder either. All right. So now the question is, and you, and you got to be careful about projecting the wrong set of values into the wrong place. So you're you're in a commodities game. Um, you're in a commodities business. It's not what it is to us. It's what it is to them. Any business that doesn't deliver its product, what happens? It doesn't last very long. They go out of business. And that's if you're a kidnapping gang and you develop a reputation for not delivering hostages, that's going to get out. It sounds insane, but it doesn't matter what it is to us. It matters what it is to them. Right. And if they don't deliver, they don't get paid. And they're much more interested in getting paid because to them it's a business. Is there any frequency with which people are kidnapped for ransom in the U.S.? Or is this, I picture most hostage situations in the U.S. to be these, you know, extremely emotional, in many cases, attempts on the part of the, the hostage taker to commit suicide by cop. What would you expect if you heard that someone had been kidnapped in the U.S.? Yeah, and, and a great question, because what, you know, what, what type of hostage situation is it? You can't, you can't broad brush uh, a kidnapping and suicide by copper as different as zebras and giraffes. Yeah, but they're both from Africa. Well, they're or a, gir- a giraffe and a rhino. They're both African animals, right? Suicide by cop takes place principally, primarily at banks. Secondarily, uh, any situation where the bad guys are trying to get the police's attention. That's a, one of the first elements of suicide by cop. Did they create a provocation they know the police are going to show up to? Why does it happen at banks? Banks got bank alarms. Cops show up really fast. Kidnapping, completely different animal. They're not trying to get the police's attention. They're trying to get the family's attention. Now, domestic U.S. kidnapping, because they figure they're going to get caught, and they're and if they get caught, the primary witness is the victim. Different game entirely. The victim is now a threat. Kidnapping internationally, who's got a who's got a robust penal system, jail system in comparison to the United States in the third world? Nobody. They're not going to go to jail and they're not going to stay there. That's the big problem with kidnapping in, in what we would, in a very broad general terms, refer to as the developing world, which is where it exists as a business. So is that just down to the, the weakness of these states or do these states have a, are there some perverse incentives that I don't understand that cause them to care less about this than they should? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, right? Um, if you live in Colombia, you expect you're going to get kidnapped someday. As a Colombian or, or as a foreigner living in Colombia? No, if you live in Colombia. Wow. Like, if you're an American, you figure you're going to get sued. If you live in Colombia, you figure you're going to get kidnapped. As a, there, there has been historically a certain fatal acceptance of that. Now, the Colombians have turned out in demonstrations in the numbering of the hundreds of thousands angry at their government for allowing these conditions to exist. I mean, it's, and it's not as bad as it was maybe 10, 15 years ago. There were a number of demonstrations against the government for being so tolerant against kidnappings because they kind of accepted it as something they couldn't do anything about. Now, you know, it, but, but there's a certain acquiescence to different ideas. 
kidnappings, hostage takings have been part of the, are part of the culture in the Middle East that go back two, three thousand years. It's part of their history. Kidnappings in the Philippines, Gracia Burnham talked about after they came out of the Philippines, um, one of their kids had their bicycle, quote, kidnapped. And instead of there being a law enforcement follow-up, they were expected to pay the ransom to get the bicycle back because that's what was accepted in that local culture. So yeah, you know, you got you to be careful about projecting American values onto other countries because they think we're insane. And, uh, you know, the, the accusation of cultural imperialism around the world against the United States is still a legitimate accusation. So what have you gleaned based on your experience negotiating these hostage rescues for negotiation in general? Your, your book, which I found fascinating, Never Split the Difference, is, is essentially the, your, your lateral move from working in extremists like this to going into a real estate negotiation or a generic business negotiation. What principles have you extracted here that, that are useful in, in ordinary lives? Yeah, well, no matter what the no matter what the uh, um, context is, you're still driven. Uh, you're still dealing with human beings that are driven by their emotional system, and we've all got the same emotional wiring. Um, there is the DSM. DSM is a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, categorized for the human race. There isn't a DSM for. Asians and a DSM for Africans and a DSM for Western Europeans. And there isn't even a separate DSM for terrorists or Middle Easterners or however they get into it. There's one manual. So human beings um, are the same. The circumstances are different. But they have a, there's certain rules that always apply. One of those rules is the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. Start to look at how they reacted in the past walking in. Another one of the rules is what Danny Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for in behavioral economics. Our outsized driver of, of our behavior is always going to be our fear of loss. Use, use the emotional intelligence skills of hostage negotiators to see what the fear of loss is in the other guy's head. Then use the same set of skills to get him to see a different picture. And that, that ends up being the case regardless of the negotiation, is, is, is as insane as that sounds. Well, in the book, you talk about various techniques. You mentioned one earlier here called mirroring, where you're, you're repeating back what someone has said. And you know, as I was reading this, you know, this is, this is the kind of thing that I've spent very little time thinking about, though I've been in many different negotiations in my life. But when I think about applying some of these techniques, and this is a, this is a scruple or concern you, you address in the book at one point, my first reaction is that on the assumption that they work, there's something manipulative about it or subtly dishonest, or at the very least, it takes you out of a straightforward effort to communicate with somebody and puts you in a mode of focusing on extraneous details and strategies which seem kind of odd to focus on when you're, when you're just used to talking to people. Yeah, you know, that's a great question, and it's a good filter to go through first. and. Uh, what I try to get anybody to recognize is, for example, you know, what's the definition of a tool? Are these tools, is a tool by definition inherently good or bad? You and I are talking through a computer right now. You know, there are a lot of people who use computers to commit crimes, to do very bad things with computers, yet you're using one. Well, you're using your powers for good and not evil. There are lots of murders that are orchestrated through the use of cell phones. But does that stop us from using cell phones? Because they're just tools. Now, our, our rules for negotiations have always been uh, we needed to pass through two filters for us to make the decision as to whether or not we're going to use a tool. Does the mercenary like it? Does the missionary like it? Mercenaries use empathy because it works. The single most influential type of influence you can develop with anybody is trust-based influence. It's the most durable, sustainable, and that's why sociopaths use it. The biggest users of empathy, cognitive empathy, tactical empathy, that strict definition worldwide are sociopaths. All right, so the mercenaries like the tool, secondary, missionaries. You know what? Empathy is great for building long-term relationships. Trust is what 
the basis of all relationships should be. You should look out for the other side. The other side should feel understood. They should feel appreciated. They should feel respected. Is a missionary like the tool? Yeah, because it's good for the person on the other side for them to feel respected and appreciated. So if it, if, if it runs through both those filters and hostage negotiation techniques do, then we're good with using it. So do, do you find yourself, once you've acquired these tools, do you find yourself using them unconsciously or are they always a matter of conscious applications so to take something like mirroring? Well, they're perishable skills. So you should be using it to develop better relationships. People that you care about, the people that you love, the people that you want to be happy, they should feel understood, respected by you. And, the, and then the reality is if it's a perishable skill, yeah, I need to use it. I mean, we use it with each other, my company all the time. My, my son is my director of operations. It's important to me that he feel that he is, in fact, valued, respected, and appreciated. Not just feel that way, but that my actions line up with my words. But my words have to be there also. If there's a disconnect between your actions and your words, you got a problem. It's not that one should stand by itself. You know, I should have bad words if I treat you well. No, I should be able to get away with treating you badly because I've got good words. No, I mean, both those things need to line up. So this is part of having great verbal skills and the follow-up treatment that, uh, that lines up with your verbal skills. And, and what are the, the ethical parameters here of good negotiation in your view? I mean, for instance, deception, does that play any role at all or is, or is honesty a commitment generically going into any negotiation? Deception is just dumb. I mean, this, people get lured into deception because they're able to make short-term gains. But the long-term consequences of deception always are worse than the short-term short-term gains, and that's what a lot of people miss. Because you know, like if I I can lie here and I could just pull this off, and this is going to be a big score, and that's always catches up with people. It's always bad. Um, and so you, you if you're a mercenary, you shouldn't lie because it's going to cost you long-term. It's just dumb. It's just really dumb. But a lot of people get lured into it because if you're only paying attention to short-term successes, you see the guy next to you lie to somebody, backstab somebody, and get a big score. Um, and it's tempting. I mean, uh, I'm in Los Angeles now, and it's, the entertainment world is close by. Not one person that I've run across, not one entertainment executive, believes that deception backstabbing is a best practice that ensures long-term success. Have they all probably done it? somewhere along their career? Probably. Have they had it happen to them? Absolutely. Do they believe that it's a smart move? No. It's a bit of a reality of the environments we tend to, tend to live in, but those guys don't want to live with those consequences because they know it always comes out, and they always regret the long-term consequences when they happen. So long-term, it's a bad, it's a bad idea. So how would you bound the categories of deception and having privileged information in a negotiation. So you're, you're not showing all your cards, obviously, at all times. If you're saying, to take the, the simplest case, so you, you're saying that you can only do something for a certain price, when does it become deceptive to make that representation when, in fact, when push comes to shove, you will do it for a different price? Yeah, well, you know, that's a great question, and that's kind of the eternal, uh, the question that comes up. You know, what's the difference between bluffing which is acceptable and lying, which is unacceptable. And a lot of it really boils down to, are you taking you hostage? Like if I reveal this information, am I a victim? Can I be victimized with it? If I say, look, um, I got to make this deal in the next 24 hours or I'm in trouble. Or I could say, look, if you don't make this deal with me in the next 24 hours, I got to move on. So it's really, how are we taking ourselves hostage? If you feel like you can't be forced to say yes, well, what you're hiding is actually going to be a critical issue of what is going to make the deal good for you. If you're only hiding it because it is important, and how are you going to make the best deal you could possibly make by hiding important information that will affect the outcome? So it's really a mental approach as to whether or not you're going to take yourself hostage, which is easily said, but much more difficult to do. So we're, we're, when we negotiate, we're pretty open. I mean, I, you know, I got a price. 
if you can lay some terms on the table that are more valuable to me than my price, I'm probably going to cut my price. But we're going to need to brainstorm with each other and we're going to have to talk with each other pretty openly to get to those deals. And we kind of pride ourselves on that. We pride ourselves on making great deals that are not price driven. Give me a picture of, of what your professional life looks like now. How, who, uh, your, your company's called the Black Swan Group? Black Swan Group, yeah. Sounds kind of yeah, sexy, yeah. right? <laughs> who uses your services? And at what point do you help with a negotiation? Um, somebody might come to us for co- coaching when, they're, when, they're, when the house is on fire, so to speak. They've had a problem they've been dealing with for a while. They can't figure out any way out of it. We can coach them out of it in really short order. One of our clients have been struggling with with a deal for 18 months. Recently, we we had it resolved in 10 days. Um, so you might come to us for coaching if you become familiar with the book and the house is burning down right now. Um, we're gonna help you, we're gonna be able to help you with that right away if you're coachable. Um, if you're determined to continue to fan the flames the way that you were fanning them before you called us, then we're going to say, look, you know, fan away. What, what got you here is not going to get you there. Part of the problem is the way you're approaching it. What industries do we, uh, we coach? We coach them all. We're getting a lot more salespeople these days. We're doing private equity. We're coaching a private equity company. We're coaching people in medical devices. We coached a, a, a merger negotiation recently. We coached a divorce negotiation. We coached an insurance sale, settlement. Really, it's more of an issue of, are you a learner? Did you ever buy anything to make yourself smarter? Have you ever bought a book to do a better job? Are you studying anybody's material? Do you believe that you can get smarter by learning? If you, if you believe in learning, and, and a lot of people don't, a lot of people say, well, they, the only teacher is experience. Well, those people are slow learners. Um, and they're bad clients. And they don't listen well. Um, so, you know, we could, we're not, not only can we not help you that much because you won't listen, but since you're going to be a pain in the neck, we're probably not going to want to take you on as a client. So you're, you're always working behind the scenes, coaching people to be better negotiators on their own behalf. You're never entering a negotiation for them, like, a, you know, representing them in a negotiation. Right. Yeah. We don't want to rep anybody. You, you'll get through it a lot faster. Plus, if we coach you, you're going to be able to turn around and do the next deal. You don't need us to be a dependent of yours for the rest of your life. We want to coach you up. Uh, you know, a great coach, Andre Agassi, and I'm sure I didn't pronounce his name properly, but he had, he had a great coach once. I think that man's name was Brad Gilbert. And uh, he said, you know, a great coach knows when they can turn you loose without him. The great coach gets you to the next level and lets you go. And uh, that's that's what we want to do. We want to help people get down the road um, without having us is on, on retain with them for the rest of their lives. We want them to be better after we've helped them. So how do you view using carrots and sticks in negotiations? Uh, you know, um, I don't like sticks. Punishment uh, is a toxic thing that creates long-term bad consequences. I'm, I'm not sure that... Um, you know, we want it to be good for you. We want you to feel like you won. You know, our goal is to make a better deal with you than you even imagined would be possible. So we're looking for uh, long-term productive relationships where you want to continue to do business with us. And if, you're, if your goal in a negotiation is to use sticks more, we're not your people. And not only do we not want you as a customer, you're not going to last long because if you use a stick with everybody, then pretty soon you got nothing but enemies and nobody wants to do business with you. Um, and you're not going to be a great example of a client for us because you're not going to prosper long term. So then what are some of the, the biggest misconceptions that people have, do you think, about negotiation? Um, I, you know, I think that uh, uh, the, the great misconception is leverage. You know, what kind of leverage do I have? What, what kind of ability do I have to punish the other side? What kind of leverage do they have on me? I mean, people that are really into teaching negotiation will either tell you there's no such thing as leverage or there's always leverage. You know, our, our philosophy has always been there's always leverage. Uh, the Jim Camp group has always believed there's no such thing as leverage. What, you know, what's the takeaway from both of those? Leverage is in the eye of the beholder. So um, the rethinking of leverage is the first issue, whether or not you could see it as completely perception-oriented. Then after that, um, other misconceptions is that you need people to say yes. 
that's a really bad misconception because people are trapping others with yes all the time. So getting someone to say yes increases their anxiety. They know you're trying to get them to say yes. What's the hook? What's the catch? Everybody's worried about the catch. Another misconception is that you got to go first. You got to establish a range. You got to come hard. You got to come high. Uh, you, you're going to leave money on the table if you do that. You sit down and talk to Warren Buffett. He's going to want to know what you think before he starts throwing any of his ideas out because he's gauging you as, as a business partner. He's gauging you as an ambassador. He's engaging you for how high maintenance you are through the duration of the relationship. So you, you get a meeting with Warren Buffett on a business deal. He's going to want to know where you're coming from before you lay stuff out. So it sounds like you're viewing negotiation as a, a almost by definition, a non-zero-sum game, whereas the, the only successful negotiation is positive for both sides and something that both sides would, would happily repeat. And so therefore, you're assuming that's the case. What does it mean to drive a hard bargain or to work to your maximum advantage in that context? Because at a certain point, you are you must be giving something up that, you know, strictly speaking, you wouldn't have to in order to make this a, a sufficiently positive experience for the other side. Yeah, well, there's, you know, there's a difference between whether or not you're compromising and whether or not you're making a high-value trade. The whole definition of negotiation is to make a high-value trade. And because we're hiding stuff from each other, and I, I've, I've asked people, give me a time when you're not hiding. Give me an example of a negotiation you were involved in where you weren't hiding information. I have yet to have anybody come up with an example. What does that mean? What that means is there's the other side's always hiding also. What does that mean, which is hard to wrap your mind around it, is there's always a better deal. There's always more than a zero-sum game there if you're both hiding stuff. And there's always going to be stuff that I have that you have easy access to that I can't get at. That's why we're negotiating in the first place. So give me the stuff that means nothing to you, that, but it means a lot to me. And it, it takes a little bit of patience to accept that and a little bit of you know, confidence and some practice. But you can cut spectacular deals if you take that approach where you know, it's not a zero-sum game. There's something there that I could give you that you'd love to have if we could just figure it out. And it's going to surprise both of us. And that's what takes us out of the zero-sum game. So you're talking about situations where there's something other than the money involved that one side could give the other at very low cost to him or herself, but at, but at high value to the, the other side. Yeah, you know what? And there's always something other than the money. It was one of my, one of the, my favorite deals, tricks to try to illustrate this when I was teaching in, in MBA courses, because every student would walk in with a name tag. And I, I picked a name tag or I picked their shirt off their back. And I'd say, how much for the shirt off your back? And it might look at me and say, it's not for sale. No, how much? $1,000. Okay. Give me the shirt. I get the shirt. They say, wait a minute. What about my $1,000? I say, oh yeah, I'll give you a dollar a year. Now I agreed to $1,000, but the implementation of every deal is where the profit is made, not at the price. Nobody pays taxes on the profit that they booked at the deal. They pay taxes on what they ended up with after the implementation. And that's where the profit and loss is made. And that's what everybody misses. So say more about that. What is that? Because at least in, in my brain, that does just translate into dollar value in the end. All the money is worth more now than over the course of a thousand years, obviously. But again, that just that is in the end, just a number. How does it become more than a matter of the cash value? So when I left the FBI, if you, uh, if you started to work, uh, your day rate, if you were doing pretty good back in 2007, you got $1,000 a day. And I had a lot of guys that used to brag about, you know what, I don't step out the front door of my house unless I get at least $1,000 a day. All right, fine. Your $1,000 day gigs, when you get them, cost you three days. Because there's a travel day you don't get paid for, there's a day you're on scene, you got $1,000 for that day, and there's a travel day that you come back that you don't get paid for it either. So when you book that gig, you're not getting $1,000 a day, you're getting just slightly under $334 a day. 
Now, the second question is, how often do you get those $1,000 a day gigs? If you're lucky, you get one a week. But in reality, you're lucky to get more than one a month. So are you making $1,000 a day? You might not be making $1,000 a month. But the same guy was always bragging about, I don't step out the front door <laughs> of my house for less than $1,000 a day. Well, how often do you step out the front door of your house and how long are you gone when you go? You have kind of a detailed approach to thinking through negotiations in your book. What principles can you flag here for our listeners that might help them think about negotiation in a new way? Well, you know, um, don't take yourself hostage by your vision of the future uh, and understand whether or not from the very beginning you're the favorite or the fool. A lot of people out there pumping you for information. Salespeople like to say it's, it, the sin is, is, isn't failing to get the deal. The sin is failing to get the deal over a long period of time. And every salesperson nods their head when you say that to them because they can think of all the times that they chased the deal for months and months and months and never got it or chased it for two years and then finally cut their price. And it cost them money. You know, jettison the deals that are going to take you a long time to get because there's a, no matter what you do, there's enough good business out there for you to do now that if you stop chasing deals and you found a way to screen them, you'd make more money sooner by not chasing deals. So that's just putting a price on your time. Yeah. And then becoming aware of it because, and it's really hard when you don't have a lot of deals because you'll, cha you'll take yourself hostage because you haven't got much coming in the door. And you're thinking like, I'm going to walk away from this opportunity. I can't do that. I can't do that. I haven't got enough opportunity as it is to walk away from any. That's a really hard problem. And it, it's, I think it's what most startup businesses face overwhelmingly, and it's the one thing that kills them more than anything else. Well, it's also the, the, the sunk cost fallacy, which is another reasoning error of the sort that Kahneman and Tversky have detailed for us. Yeah. Well, Chris, this, is, this has been fascinating. Is there any area that we haven't covered here that you think would be useful for people to reflect on? Uh, yeah, you know, only that, I mean, negotiation is not a horrible thing. You can, you can get better at it. If you stop taking yourself hostage, you're taking yourself hostage over your fears, your, your certainty of rejection, you know, just with a, a less overly aggressive approach, you can get a lot more. I'll give you a quick example. In a Macy's uh, a couple years ago with a, a young lady that I was dating, she, she, there was a garment she wanted and had a flaw in it. She said, you know, watch me. I'm going to get 10% off on this. I'm going to go over there and complain about this. They're going to give me 10% off. And I said, hold it, hold it, hold it. I'm going to go over there and be nice and get 30% off. So you can get a lot farther being nice than anyone ever imagines. Just to put a finer point on that, what is the role of and utility of anger if it's ever useful? Obviously, there are famous negotiators who are also famous for getting angry, whether strategically or just based on their own lack of emotional control. When does that work to a person's advantage? It doesn't. It's always bad long term. You remember all the times that somebody got angry with you and you still got a bad feeling about it. And it, it's just a toxin. It's, it's a nuclear waste toxin that just doesn't go away. And yeah, you know, you can, and there's even a, um, there was even a study out of Northwest, Northwestern not that long ago. They talked about strategic umbrage. Got to watch your academic studies because they said strategic umbrage got people better deals in this study. What were the deals? They were all pretend deals where there were students under controlled environment, which meant they felt like the, if they didn't make a deal at all, they failed. I'm not seeing anybody out there in any business book advocating anger as a best practice for success. Even our current president, Donald Trump, when he sits down with people, look at what happened to Kim Jong-un, the meeting in Singapore afterwards. Kim, he's a nice guy. I like him. You know, I showed him videos. We talked. I really enjoyed his company. 
I mean, even people that are famous for throwing tantrums publicly, when they meet with people, they want to get along because they understand that for long-term relationships of prosperity, anger only damages that. Right. Well, that's one thing that an experiment in the lab can't model well, this idea of of long-term opportunities and, and relationship building. Right. And is there any place online where you want people to seek out more information about you? Yeah, you know, the best way to keep up with everything that we do is through our newsletter. It comes out once a week. It's called The Edge. And it's a short, sweet, um, it's not a lot of reading to get through. It doesn't tire you out. It's a great way to start your day and tee up your week. Um, So, uh, and it's a gateway to everything. I mean, we got information about free courses. We got information about training sessions. So to subscribe to The Edge, Send a text message of FBI empathy, all one word. Don't let your autocorrect change it and make it two words. FBI empathy, all one word. And send that text to the number 22828. And again, that number is 22828. FBI empathy, you'll get a dialogue box back. We'll ask you for your email address. You put that in. You signed up for the edge. It's free, which is a good price. And there's a lot of valuable, solid gold information in there. Interesting. I've never heard something implemented quite that way. Now, is there a a route through your website as well, or are you just text-based here? Uh, uh, The the newsletter ends up leading you to the website with the articles, but this is a function that we've got set up with uh, a company that uh, we use just to, to put the newsletter out, and they give us a text-to-sign-up function, and it's just the simplest way to sign up. The future has arrived. Yes. Well, Chris, thank you so much for bringing your insights onto the podcast. Well, I want to thank you for having me on. I mean, and and we went through a lot to get me on here, and I put you through a lot. And you have been wonderful and gracious to have gone through this and had me as a guest on your show. So I'm very appreciative of it. Best of luck to you. Keep it up. Thank you, Sam. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. you also get access to advanced tickets to my live events as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.